Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. This week, if you're reading along in the story with your family, we get to the part of the Old Testament where, if I'm honest, almost caused me to fail all of my Old Testament classes in college, right? First and Second Kings are doozies of books in the Bible, right? King after king is listed and memorizing all of those guys was not my strong point, right? So do not try to quiz me after service because I can guarantee you that I will not do very well. But, right, as promised, as we read along in the story, in this, this long story short, this highlight of Scripture, as a church and as uh, families within this church, each week I'll take a deep dive into one of those stories that we read. And this week, I want to focus on the rule, on the kingship, on the, the kingdoms of not just one king, but three kings, right? Three different kings, David who we kind of talked about a little bit last week, Solomon, David's son, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was just a complete idiot, but we'll get there in just a minute. All right, today's going to be a little bit different because we have a lot to cover with these three kings and a lot to learn, so we're just going to dive right in, right? Last week, we did talk a little bit about the anointing, the calling, the the calling out of David. And if you remember, after he was anointed to be the next king, he just goes back into the field and continues to work and to serve his father as a shepherd. Right? He, he was anointed king, but takes his position as a humble shepherd until the day comes when there's a battle and he has to take some food to his brother's. And he is shocked when he shows up to the front lines, and there is this giant uh, Philistine, right? Their enemy, and this giant, this Philistine, is taunting the people of God. He's taunting the armies of God, and he's taunting God himself. And David was highly offended by this giant named Goliath, right? If you're reading the story, we've gotten to this point. Right, he was the, the youngest brother. Right? David was the youngest brother of all of, of his father's children. But I often think that this was the moment in David's life where he was in the big brother moment almost. For example, right? Or, or he was the, the mama bear for all you moms that are out there. It's almost like he looks at Goliath and he says, oh no, you didn't. Right? Right, that big brother moment on the, on the playground, right? Or the, the, the mama bear thing, right? Oh, no, you didn't. Not to my family, right? And not to my friends, and definitely not to my God. And so he went to King Saul, the current king of Israel, and he says, look, I can take care of this. Right? I got this. I can take care of this. When, when I've been out watching my father's sheep, I've killed predators, I've killed wolves, I've killed lions, I've killed bears. I can take care of this this giant. And he says, says, listen, listen, the Lord who rescued me 
who rescued me in those situations from all those predators, from all those long days and nights out into the fields and on the, the country, right? He will do the same thing here on this battlefield, right? My God will protect me. Just let me fight, right? He's, he's like rolling up his sleeves. He's getting ready, right? He's saying, put me in, coach, right? right? That's what he's saying. Put me in, coach, right? No one can stop me. Right? But because it's not me fighting, he says, it's the Lord who's going to fight for me. Right? The Lord, the God that I serve, is going to win this battle. Right? David was not putting his trust or his hope in his resume. David was not putting his, his trust, his hope, and all his chips on his, his accomplishments or his, his experiences, his skills, or even his potential. Right? Right? He, he was saying, the Lord will rescue me. That's where he was putting all his hope and, and all his trust and everything that he had and everything that he, he was. Right? He was putting it on the Lord. He was forging his life on the Lord. Right? David, as we will see, was a man. Right? He, and he was incredibly flawed man. Right? But his hope was anchored in God, right? He, he never wavered from that. So he goes out into the battlefield, he defeats Goliath, and then actually spent many years after that event, after that battle, serving in Saul's service, in his court, King Saul's court. He, until Saul, this, the current king, became very jealous of, of his accomplishments and his popularity, and he began to, to hunt him down. Right, put a put a kill order on David's life. Right, Saul was trying to kill David, and and it turns out David actually had two opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't do it. Hey, if you were reading along in the story this week, you saw that. Right, he said, "I'm not going to touch God's anointed. He's the current king of Israel. My time has not yet come." Right, and so he just waits. Right, David, who was anointed by one of God's prophets to be the next king, and who had the popularity to do it and the skill to carry it out, said, No, I'm going to operate in the position of humility because my God will elevate me when the time is right. Right, my God will put me on the throne when the time is right. Well, Right? We saw eventually David did become king after killing the giant and some other pretty awesome stories. And once he was king, he ruled from about 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. And under his reign, Israel thrived. Right? David consolidated the people of Israel from a loose confederation of tribes into one major military political world superpower. Right? He, he wrote up the, the job descriptions for the priests and the Levites, and he drew up the, the plans for the temple, and he wrote like 70 different psalms that we have in our Bibles right now. Right, he, he conquered the, the Philistines and the uh, Jebusites, the Syrians and the Moabites and the Ammonites. He expanded Israel's territory by a factor of 10, right, through his, his military skill and his diplomacy. 
and in his poetry and in his, his writing, right, we see incredible passion, right, an incredible desire to serve God, to forge his life on God. But we also see in his life another passion, a misdirected passion that got him into to some trouble. Right? One night when he was supposed to be out into the battlefield, when he's supposed to be leading his troops, he decided to be a little bit lazy. And he stays home. And he's standing on the, on the rooftop. And he, he looks out over the neighborhood and he sees a woman bathing in the house next door. And he sends for her. And he sleeps with her. And then he just sends her back. A little while later, he discovers that she's pregnant. That's how those things work, right? And in one of the dumbest moments of his life, he calls the husband, one of his friends, one of his most trusted generals, Uriah, back from the battlefield in hopes that he'll sleep with his wife, but he won't, right? We learned that, that he won't. Uriah won't sleep with his wife because it wouldn't be fair to his soldiers that he left on the front lines who were away from their wives. So David sends him back to the battlefield and puts him in the part of the front lines where he's most certainly to be killed. And that's what happens. Right? Uriah, his friend, this trusted general, is killed. And David sends for Bathsheba, this woman, his wife, and everything is covered. And he thinks it's all okay. Until a prophet of God, a, a man named Nathan, comes wandering in. I kind of picture him old with like a big old cane, you know, like, uh, like the monkey from The Lion King. And he comes walking in and, and he hits David on top of the head. No, that's The Lion King. Right? He, he comes in and he, he confronts David about this sin that, that he's trying to cover. Right? David's, David's passion was, was misdirected. He had passion, but it was misdirected. And we find in Psalms 51 how he responds to that failure. Just what, what we read at the beginning of the service, what Christina read, right? We find in Psalms 51 that, that he still has his hope in God. And in verse 10, he says this. He says, create God. God, create in me a clean spirit, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He knows that that's what could happen. But he's saying, create in me anew. Right? Don't banish me. Don't take me away. Renew a loyal spirit within me. You see, when, when David faced failure, he responded with a, a desperate desire to restore his relationship with God, to, to reforge his life on the great I am, right? He responded in humility, right? Like that, that of a, a young shepherd fighting a, a mighty giant, right? Long, long ago, he learned a valuable lesson. He learned this lesson. Take a look. Those who humble themselves before God will be elevated before men. Right, those who humble themselves before God will be elevated before men. Listen, God will always elevate us to the position that He wants us to have if we will 
posture ourselves in humility before him. Right? Maybe, maybe not king, right? And maybe not even CEO of the company, but if we humble ourselves before God, the people around us will see us differently, Foundry Church. We will be honored among men because we have honored God, the God. You see, that one moment of misdirected and misguided passion caused this snowball effect in, in David's family. Right, of, of escalating sexual sin and murder, uh, and his kids turned against one another until finally David's uh, own son, one of his sons, Absalom, turned against him and launched a rebellion against his father, right, David. Right, that moment of misdirected passion cost David his family. It did cost him dearly in this world, right, but God also gave him a promise because of this, this, this heart, this spirit, uh, this desire to be made new, to be renewed, and to, to reforge his life on God. Right? So, so God gave him a promise. He said, your descendants, David, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And it, was, it was a curious promise because, as we'll see soon, it seems like the line of King David... His descendants will never survive, right? David's, David's humility did not save his family. It did not even save his own son, but it did earn him a promise that would one day save the entire world, generation after generation after generation, right? After David, his other son, Solomon, uh, comes to the throne, and Solomon, his name means God is peace. And that is a very fitting name uh, for this season that Solomon reigns in because it was a time of peace in the nation of Israel. Right? That's his name. Right? God is peace. And Solomon, he started off very, very strongly. He had, a, he had a dream. And God comes and appears to him in this dream. And he says, what do you wish for? What can I grant you? What do you want? And Solomon, he wished for wisdom, and that impressed God, right? And that really impressed God. And, and so Solomon, he was granted that, that wish. He was given wisdom. And he was also, because it impressed God, was, was blessed with wealth and, and with power, with all those other things that he could have wished for. All right, so, so the reign of, of King Solomon now is marked by four things, and they all start with a, a W, right? Wisdom, right? What he wished for. Wealth, the dude was wealthy, right? We still talk about his wealth. Writings, right? Because he writes a lot. We're going to look at that in a minute. And then women, right? Just like his old man, right? Just like his pops, right? Incredibly wealthy. His annual income was 25 tons of gold, and that didn't include any of his side hustles or trades and anything like that. Right? He, he launched massive building projects, included, uh, including the temple, which took seven years to build. A, a temple, a place for God's presence to, to literally dwell in the middle of Jerusalem. 
He built a palace that took 13 years to build. But here's the thing. He, he taxed his, his people heavily to fund this extravagant living. And on top of that, all of that stuff, he was a brilliant writer. Right? In your Bibles that you're holding in your laps right now, he wrote the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and, and the book of Ecclesiastes. And then there was the fourth W, women. Solomon had 700 wives, right, and 300 concubines, right? Some would say not that wise, right? <laughs> now, to give Solomon a break, we know that he did this because he was wanting to form alliances with foreign countries and foreign kings. So he would marry those daughters of those kings in hopes that, that he could maintain peace for the empire that he was building. The problem was... Right? The, the problem was that they also imported not just peace, but these wives imported their religion as well. Right? And it had a terrible impact on the people of God. Because it, with them, they brought idolatry, worship, into the kingdom of God. And it took Solomon from a, a place of, of complete dependence upon God to a place where he was trusting in the wrong things, right? Look, look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And if you don't have your Bibles, as always, use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those with you. They are free for you to take. But we're going to be in 1 Kings real quick here. And it says this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, Right? Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edmund, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. Right? The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyways. Right? Solomon, right, he let his wives bring their beliefs and their gods into God's kingdom, into this, this nation of Israel. And the worship of, of those gods was able uh, to, to seep right, into the cracks of the kingdom of Israel. And that was teaching us a valuable lesson even today. You see, here's, here's the thing about idolatry. Right, Solomon, he, he never completely turned his back on God. Right, he, he never completely turned his back on the Lord. Right, our Lord, the God, the, the uppercase G God. Right, what he did is he just didn't follow God completely. Right, he just didn't forge his entire life on God. Right? It's not that he rejected God for these other gods. He just added two. Does that make sense? He wanted to cover all his bases. Okay, so he's, saying, he's thinking, okay, right? one true God. I get it. Yes, my God. One true God, the God of Abraham, right? the, the God of Isaac and Jacob and my father David. I'm going to worship you. I have built this palace, this temple for you, because you're the God. You're my God. 
right? This is your temple, but, but I need to make sure that there's another place around here for these other gods, for these, these lowercase g gods, right? I just got to keep peace in my kingdom, so I, I need to appease some of these people as well, right? It wasn't an ultimate outright rejection of God. It was just an adding to covering his bases. You know, when I was around 10 or 12 years old, I had dreams of becoming the next big thing in baseball, right? I, I, I mean, I, I had dreams of becoming the, the great Bambino, right? The, the next Babe Ruth, right? It was during the time of Sosa and Mark McGuire and their home run race for the, the most home runs, right? And, and I thought, I was convinced, downright convinced. I didn't think. I was convinced that if I had this new baseball bat, not just any baseball bat, but this Easton baseball bat, that I would be unstoppable. And it wasn't just any Easton baseball bat. It was a blue one, right? I thought if I had this blue Easton baseball bat, that, that I would be the next home run king of the world, that, that, that Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and their home run race in the major leagues, uh, they just eat their heart out, right? It doesn't matter, right? That, that ESPN would be following me around. Now, my parents, they tried to convince me that, that the bat wouldn't change anything, but I just thought they didn't understand the greatness of this Easton baseball bat. And so I saved my money, and, and I finally was able to get the baseball bat. And guess what happened? Yeah, my, my life didn't change at all. I still could not hit the baseball to save my life. The bat didn't help me a lick, right? That blue bat could not contend with my lack of skill, right? I, I still was terrible, right? I had misplaced trust, misdirected trust in this Easton blue baseball bat. I tried to add something to me uh, to give me an edge, and it did not work, right? All right? Do we trust God, or are we trying to add stuff to us to give us an edge? Right? That, that's what we're learning from Solomon, right? Because anything uh, that we try to add to us or to God is idolatry, right? God is the complete picture. He does not need to be added to or taken away, right? He is it. <laughs> Take a look. God is lacking nothing. The God we serve is lacking nothing. Zilch, nada, nothing. And so when we ask ourselves uh, questions like these, right, how do we answer? Questions like, like to whom? Or to what do I look for value in my life? My questions like, like, what assigns me value? Or where do I find safety and refuge and, and comfort, security or shelter? Right, questions like, like, who must I please? Or whose opinion counts? Or who gets the final call on decisions in my life? Or where do I place my trust? Because listen, I know it sounds a little harsh, but if the answer to any of those questions is anything other than God, 
the God that we're forging our life on, if the answer to any of those questions is anything other than God, then we are guilty of idolatry. Or we're guilty of forging our life on stuff other than God or, or adding to, right? We're, we're guilty of thinking that God is not enough, right? I mean, take a look at this, right? It, it is not enough to worship God we have to worship God alone, right? It is not enough just to worship God. We have to worship God alone, right? It's not enough just to trust God. It is about trusting God alone, right? Solomon had a problem with, with misplaced trust because his heart was turned to idolatry, even though he was trying to keep the peace for his kingdom. Now, listen, right, the, the way that Solomon uh, responded to that failure is a little bit unclear. Right? We're, we're not sure. He, he, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes later on in his life, and he opened the book this way. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says this, Everything is meaningless says the teacher, completely meaningless. Right? Some read this and they, they hear words of despair and disillusionment and depression. Others would argue that he has come to a place of, of orthodox truth that nothing except total dependence upon God makes life worth living. But regardless, right, Solomon lost his way. Right, Solomon faced the problem of misplaced trust because he put his hope in his alliances and in his diplomacy. And his response to failure is unclear. It's probably a mix of a little bit of those interpretations of that opening verse of Ecclesiastes. It's probably a little bit of despair or disillusionment or depression. But hopefully it's also a little bit of, of a dependence upon God. Everything is meaningless except for God. But because of this, because he lost his way, and what we learn from the life of King Solomon is simple. It's this. God refuses to share his throne with anything or anyone. Simple truth to read and to look at. A little bit more difficult to apply to our lives. God refuses to share his throne with anything or anyone. Right, we have to, to examine <laughs> who we have placed on the throne of our lives. Are we focused on God's kingdom, like one of our measures out there says? Are we, are we focused on his mission, how we're going to advance his mission today in our lives? Or are we focused on something else, our wants, our, our agendas, whatever? We have to examine who we have placed on the throne or what we've placed on the throne of our lives. All right, and now, 
Solomon, now enters Rehoboam, his son. Rehoboam was the only son of Solomon that we know by name. And remember, Solomon had like a thousand wives and concubines running around. Yet we only know one of his sons by name. And he turns out to be a colossal idiot, like failure, right? Rehoboam's name means he enlarges the people, which is absolutely not true for him. Right? The only person that Rehoboam seeks to enlarge uh, was himself. Right? But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to read this together. Let, let's read. It says this, Rehoboam went to, to Shechem, uh, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Right? Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us, then we will be your loyal subjects. Rehoboam replied, give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away. Listen, all right, let me, let me explain what's happening. The kingdom of God, right, Israel right now, is at a tipping point. Right? People were not happy with the rule of Solomon, and there was talk of a split, right? of, a, of a divide. If you remember, the people of Israel uh, were split into 12 tribes named after the 12 sons of Abraham. The tribes were all assigned specific territories when they arrived in the promised land. Right? I think we have a map. All right, let, me, let me show you on the map. You can see the different tribes split up and move throughout Israel, right? The capital of the nation was Jerusalem, right? However, we read that everyone was meeting in the city of Shechem, all right? Shechem, a little bit higher up there on the map, Jerusalem, kind of right there in the tribe of Benjamin, right in the middle, right? Shechem, a little bit higher, all right? That's our first clue. It's hard to see, I know, but you probably have a map in the back of your Bibles. Now, Shechem, as a city, has a rich history, right? Abraham, right? He worshiped there. Uh, Jacob, he built an altar and he purchased land there. Joseph was buried there. But the most important thing to know is that it was also the geographical center of the northern tribes, right? You can see it on the map there, right? Meaning, just the fact that Rehoboam must go to Shechem for this event shows that he's already in a position of weakness, right? Rather than the, the people coming to the capital to name him king, he must go to them, right? And the people meet him there with an ultimatum. Now, I, I picture this, this gathering like an old Western standoff. Right? The people say, hey, we're going to meet you at high noon. Right? They got their, we're going to meet you at high noon at the OK Corral. Right? And you bring your guns, we're going to bring our guns, and at the end of the day, we'll know who is king. 
Right? That's how I picture it. But in reality, it's more less cowboy standoff and, and probably like a union meeting. Right? Essentially, the people of Israel were upset about their working conditions, and they're hoping for change. You know, all these, all these things, uh, we said that Solomon built, right? these temples and these palaces, this infrastructure, he used forced labor, and, and, and some would describe it as, as slavery of his own people to make these projects happen. And so the people come to, to Rehoboam, and they say, hey, look, look. Your father, Solomon, he had a lot of infrastructure and projects, and he built a lot of things. And because of that, we were heavily taxed. And we had heavy burdens of physical labor, forced labor. We had little to none decision-making power. So look, Rehoboam, if you want, if you want your kingship, if you want your reign to go well, you're going to need to ease up a little bit. Right? You're going to need to... Uh, just lighten the load a little bit. Right? We know that they were golden days for Solomon, but it was hard for us. It wasn't golden days for us. So if you could think about that and loosen up maybe, you know, uh, establish a platform for lower taxes, right? a little less forced labor, that would be nice. Right? That's what they're saying. Right? And so Rehoboam, like we read, says, okay, let me think about it. And here is where we learn the very first lesson from Rehoboam. Something that one of my, my pastors, one of my, my mentors taught me. First is, look up, then look around. Right? Look up, and then look around. That's what Rehoboam is teaching us here. Right? Remember Solomon at the beginning of his reign, in 1 Kings 3, 7-9, through 9, says this, Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. Right? And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me, he says, an understanding. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong for who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours. You see, when uh, Solomon felt inadequate, when Solomon felt incapable, when Solomon had more questions than answers and was feeling the pressure of his position, well, Solomon, he went to God. Right? Solomon, he, he looked up. But Rehoboam, this idiot, well, he did not. Right? Rehoboam went to men. Rehoboam, he, 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 he looked around instead of looking up. Now, for what it's worth, he, he did receive some good advice from the elders of his court. Right? Let's go back real quick to 1 Kings 12 and see what they said. 1 Kings 12, 6-7 says this. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? The older counselors replied, if you are willing to be a servant, if you are willing to be a servant, that's spiritual leadership, to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. They will always be your loyal subjects. These elders... 
reflect in their answer that they had learned from Solomon and did possess the wisdom of God. So even though Rehoboam did not seek God directly, he did at least have God's wisdom made available. But Rehoboam was foolish. Verse 8 says this, But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. We know where this is going, right? Right? He wouldn't become a servant. He would only listen to those who served him, and their advice was not wise. In fact, it was tailor-made to suit and to please Rehoboam, right? Their advice is filled with ego, pride, and, and arrogance. Verses 10 through 11 says this, The young men replied, This is what you should tell those complainers who want a, a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's wrist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I am going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. You see, when we look around, when we look to, to men for the answers to our God-sized problems, well, the solutions aren't going to be big enough. The the solutions will be man-sized. They will not take into account the full picture because no one has the full picture but God. God can see from the beginning of time to the end, and so it only makes sense that we would seek his wisdom. And when we do not, when we do not seek his wisdom, uh, horrible things can happen. Right? Read what verse 15 says. Never mind. They don't have it. And this is where Rehoboam teaches us the next lesson. Right? God is not less sovereign in the waiting than in the waxing. Right? God is not less sovereign in the waning than in the waxing. Let me explain. Not only had God sovereignly worked to plant his people in this land, in this, this promised land, to establish and to expand the kingdom and bring it into glory under David and Solomon, but, but even now, as the, the kingdom begins to, to decline, it happens according to his word. You see, even before Solomon's uh, death, God's prophet, Ajah, uh, announces to Jeroboam, who's basically a member of Solomon's cabinet, he says, Behold, I am about to tear down the kingdom from the hand of Solomon through his son, Rehoboam, and will give you ten tribes. Right? This is a prophetic uh, announcement. You see, God was planning ahead. God knew what was to come, and he made a way forward for his people. You see, when when the kingdom of God is literally falling apart, God has a plan. God is not less sovereign in the waning, in in the chaos, than the waxing. Right? He has his, his good and wise purposes even in the decline and discipline and refining and, and, and trimming of his people. 
and the difficulty of that. You see, after, after this nation split, God's people existed as two separate kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judea to, to the south. Sometimes these two kingdoms were at war. Sometimes they were at peace. But God was still sovereign. God was still above it all. Because the kingdom of God still moved forward. Do you remember the the promise that God gave to David that I mentioned? That his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever? Did that not come true? Eventually the northern kingdom that didn't even have David's descendants on the throne would be defeated by the Assyrians and exiled. And then eventually the southern kingdom, where the descendants of David were ruling, would be defeated by the Babylonians and sent into captivity and exile. But God had said to David that his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. So the spoiler alert is that a thousand years later, Right? After that promise was made, an angel showed up to a young girl right, by the name of Mary living in Nazareth. And the angel announces to her this, right? You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Now listen. Right, the, the kingdom, the split, the two kingdoms there for a while... They may have forgotten it's God and how they were supposed to forge their life on him, but God did not forget his kingdom. (laughs) The kingdom may have forgotten it's God, but God did not forget his kingdom. Now, as as Joshua and as Christina work their way back up here, I I want to close by answering this question. Of all the kings listed, because there's many more, right? Why did I choose to focus on these three kings? Well, because I think they remind us of the big story of Scripture, right? We're calling this long story short, looking from the beginning to the end, that 30,000-foot view. I think they point us to a big truth. Let me, let me explain these three kings. When we look back on these three kings, here's the question that we can ask. Why does God pick such messed up, stupid, flawed people? Yeah, yeah, David was a man after God's own heart, but the dude killed someone, the husband of a a woman that he slept with and got pregnant, right? I mean, they messed up. Solomon couldn't be that wise. It's 700 wives. Why does God pick such flawed people? Seriously, why does, does he even go to some of these yahoos when they, they, he just knows that they're going to mess up? Right? David had an affair. He killed the man to cover it up. Solomon openly sinned against God and allowed his harem of women to bring idol worship into the kingdom of God. And Rehoboam was just a complete idiot. So why does God use flawed people? So why does God use use men like these three men and countless others when we look at the long story short, when we look at the story of the Bible? Well, well, here's here's the problem when we read the Bible. We have a tendency 
talking about. We have a tendency to look at it as good versus bad or heroes versus villains, and we try to put people in each of those these categories, right? But here's the truth. The only hero of the story of the Bible is Jesus. That's the only hero, period, right? Every single person besides Jesus is just a mixed bag. Right? They are, are people like us, and that's what's comforting. They are people like us that are born with tremendous God-given potential, but also with a propensity for doing things that are not of God, that just aren't good. So, so look, right? The story of God is nothing else than the story of a faithful God who pursues unfaithful people. That's the story of God. Not just the story of God with these three kings, but the story of God from the beginning to the end. The story of God is nothing else than the story of a faithful God who pursues unfaithful people. And it is a story about a God who sovereignly uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. Right, that is what David and Solomon and even Rehoboam teach us. At the heart of all these flawed men is the long story of a faithful, trustworthy God who's pursuing us, Foundry Church. The kingdom may have forgotten its God, but God did not and will never forget his kingdom. God is still reigning supreme and he will never stop no matter what this world throws into the mix. Let's stand and continue to worship our great God, the God that we can forge our life on.